this is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy and politics. Just like the federal liberal minority government, we are back for another season and we have some changes. Now, one major change folks will notice in comparison to season one is that I've actually moved to Ottawa. So this means dialogue is now being recorded over two different time zones. While this has changed, listeners can still expect weekly episodes Monday mornings at 8 a.m. Atlantic. Speaking of which, to kick season two off, we're going to be chatting about the 2021 federal election. Now, as many listeners know, this election was called less than two years following the last general election. This is aligned with the duration of minority governments in general. What was different about this election, though, was that it occurred during a pandemic and COVID-19 was indeed front of mind during the campaign season, though not in ways one might expect. To unpack hashtag election 44 from the campaign to the aftermath, with us today is cross-stitching enthusiast, dog mom, freelance journalist, and journalism instructor at Holland College, Teresa Wright. Teresa, thank you so much for agreeing to guest on the show with us today. Um, Our first question is one that our listeners know very well, and it's a very serious question. How are you today? <laughs> I, I'm very well. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I'm, I'm excited. Yes, we were saying earlier, we're so excited to have a, a celebrity such as yourself on the podcast. Uh, now, Teresa, you've been a columnist with The Guardian covering the past federal election over the last number of weeks. However, in 2019, you were covering the election from the campaign trail. In comparison, how do these two experiences compare? Well, uh, obviously, they're very, very different experiences. Um, this this past election, it was um, uh, the column that I was writing was actually for Saltwire, so it was regional, and uh, and I really was it. It allowed me to kind of have a, a more of a bird's eye view of the election um, when I was actually on like the campaign trail in 2019. You know, at first, the first I think. 11 or 12 days I was with the liberals and then uh, they made me take a break because uh, I just had so much overtime. And then uh, I was back in um, working in Ottawa covering um, the election just from the the desk, like a lot of us do. And then back out again at the last, like probably two weeks of the campaign with the uh, NDP. And it was when you're on the planes and buses, you're just so in it and you don't even always know what's happening with the other campaigns, right? You're so immersed in it. And it's such a hugely busy schedule. Like it's really hard to convey how bit, how busy it is, how, how much um, activity goes on. And, and it's the same for all the, the leaders. Uh, they, they do, um, you, we start early in the morning, uh, a lot of travel, sometimes several provinces in one day, um, you know, and and doing a lot of, you know, um, the, the same similar speeches. You hear the same speeches kind of over and over again. Um, in 2019, they all had songs, election songs, of the different <laughs> campaigns. I totally understand that wasn't the case this time, but you get really sick of the song. <laughs> at every single stop and like I said there's multiple stops in a day so you know after a week or two you kind of you really really have heard that song a lot um but it's it's 
it's interesting to be able to, to be up that up, up close and personal, obviously, to be seeing what is happening um, on the ground and seeing how people are reacting to the messages, the leaders, uh, and, and how that differs from province to province or even city to city. Uh, and it's, it's really, really cool, obviously, but yeah, you, you're in such a bubble that you don't always know. And so my desk would be sending me things, you know, questions for the daily press conferences. And I would just be like, oh, what do you mean? Andrew Shear said, what? You know, so because <laughs> you just, you don't have time. There's no ability, you know, to, there's no way for you to be able to kind of keep track of it. Whereas in this election, I was able to kind of watch all the press conferences every day if I wanted to. Um, and I did most days. Um, and also you kind of are, are understanding better sort of what the the mood is in the country and um, how different messages are sort of um, settling in in a larger way. Uh, and especially for writing this particular column that I was doing, I was it was the focus was regional. So I was thinking about the federal election from the perspective of Atlantic Canadians. And that really helped me too to kind of think about an issue in a different way than I, I would have look, looked at it before when you're thinking of it from a national perspective. So it's um, it's been really a, a totally different experience, but I, I value both of them equally. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's very comprehensive. And I don't know, just the idea of listening to the same song over and over again, it feels like Christmas, but not quite. Where you can see a song in every department store. It's Ritmus, Sweta, Ritmus. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, well, and, and that's where you start to appreciate if they pick a, a good song or not, because some of them are better than others. And uh, so if you have to get stuck listening to a song a lot. You kind of hope you're going to like it, but I won't make any judgment calls on the songs because I feel like people might, uh, <laughs> that could be taken the wrong way. <laughs> Of course, no worries at all. Now, when we look at elections, you know, throughout the years, every election seems to have a decisive issue or, you know, an important question at the heart of it. Um, and this issue often dictates whether people will vote and if they do, how they will vote. Um, in 2011, we had a lot of conversations around the economy and the justice system. In 2015, we talked a lot about electoral reform, about the role of youth and gender equality. In 2019, uh, climate occupied a favorable spot at the center of debates. For the last election, um, I think many of us expected healthcare or COVID-19 recovery to be a decisive priorities. Do you find that this prediction has held true? And if not, what were some of the most important issues this election? Well, I do think that COVID-19 was a big part of uh, the campaign and the discussions about vaccine mandates and mask mandates um, dominate a lot of those discussions. And I do believe that um, that the liberal leader, then Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, was using um, the question of uh, vaccinations, especially the fact that the conservatives um, were were not the conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, did not uh, make it mandatory for his candidates to be vaccinated. Trudeau really got, used that a lot uh, in terms of of trying to um, sort of uh, get more support for his party and also try to to put the the conservatives in a negative light, use it as a as a wedge issue, um, and. 
I, I was really expecting to see a lot more substantive debate at the leader level on the different the recovery um, pieces of their platform because they're in the platforms of all the parties. They did they mm. do have a significant um, number of promises and policy um, proposals. And a lot of them did focus heavily on COVID-19 recovery, but you didn't hear a lot of those discussions happening right. um, at the, on, you know, on a daily basis, um, even in the speeches that they choose to give that, you know, they were focusing their messaging very much on issues that were going to give them a bump in the polls. And unfortunately, a lot of those issues were very, very negative. So you heard a lot of that, that polarizing um, conversation about, about masks and vaccines. You heard a lot about, um, you know, gun control. Uh, you heard a lot about abortion uh, and, uh, you know, and the liberals trying to use those issues to, uh, to help and, and galvanize their base. Uh, and I think, and then forcing the conservatives to have to be on the defensive about those issues, which, you know, anytime if you're being put on the defensive, it's, it's not where you want to be in a political context, especially in an election. Uh, and, 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 and because of that, I think that there were really important issues like healthcare, like, um, you know, childcare, even that, you know, the liberals were, was a very central part of their, their platforms that we just didn't hear those conversations mm. happening as much as I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good overview. And as you were talking there, um, you know, reflecting on, you know, what was presented in the platforms versus what was articulated to the public were two very different things. And particularly on items like you know, abortion and gun control, like when we reflect on, you know, what are main kind of issues Canadians are talking about? That to me is like, whoa, that's, that's very American. That's very, I think it's different. Um, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, a different kind of presentation between platform and, and what was given to the public. It's okay if I jump in, because I, I think it's unfortunate, because I think that Canadians are ready to have good debate and conversations about some of these. And, and given that there was so much of a a question of why we were even in this election, why did Justin Trudeau call it? If not just for the sake of getting a a majority, he said that he, he called it because there were big decisions for Canadians to make. And that it was, you know, that, that a government needed to have the mandate to, to do those things. And so I agree that we do have big decisions to make, but I don't think that we had an opportunity to really have the discussion about what those decisions should be and how Canadians are going to be or or what direction um, that that is going to take now. So, um, yeah, I do think it's it's unfortunate that 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 those those conversations didn't happen uh, at the leader level. Yeah, and just to jump to to one of the specific policy areas you covered during the election, um, it was basic income. And you had stated that this election was missing its, quote, kind of big idea or kind of raison d'etre. And you argued that this election would have been the time to propose something big, such as basic income. So two questions on this. First one is, why do you believe that this election would have been a good idea to propose uh, a big idea such as basic income? Well, I mean, I think especially after what happened with the pandemic, um, we were put into a situation where Canadians obviously needed to stay home before we had the vaccine and uh, 
people's livelihoods literally disappeared overnight. And so that's, you know, that's where the CERB came from. And there was, so the government showed through the CERB that number one, something like, a, you know, a, a social safety net program can be done, that it can be done quickly and, you know, and get it gotten out the door, you know, very, very efficiently if, if it's needed and if there is the will to do it. And in that case, there was because it was a public safety issue. But, you know, I think for all the people who have always thought, well, you know, how could we do it? And how would it look? And what would, the, you know, what would be the, the price tag and everything else? No one cared about the price tag or, you know, how, what the rollout was going to be in the middle of the pandemic. It was just, we need to get people money so they can stay home and stay safe. So, in that, in this moment, I think that that was, if you're going to have a conversation about basic income, here was a really great time for it. Also, I mean, again, as I mentioned before, I think, you know, Justin Trudeau really did struggle with, you know, trying to define the selection or, and I don't, and again, everyone else too, I think, because there was just this question of whether we should have been in an election or not, um, you know, that that became almost the defining question of the election. And, you know, I think that that's a missed opportunity. Uh, it's also important to remember that um, the Liberal Party uh, did at their policy convention just a couple of months before the election, um, mm. overwhelmingly supported the idea of a basic income. There is a lot of public buy in already for the idea of a basic mm -hmm. income. Um, I know the models, there's different models that have been proposed, um, but even, I was just surprised there wasn't even an idea of a pilot, you know, even a smaller, you know, whether it be in PEI or anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it just, because there's there's such a growing uh, call for it. And also given the fact that a lot of the issues that were coming up from voters during this election, things like housing, um, affordability, cost of living, these are all things that can be, um, that a basic income could potentially uh, help, not necessarily solve, but but address. So that's where I thought it was interesting that um, that it wasn't uh, a central part of the, of the campaign or a big question that, that was even from the NDP because they supported the idea of it, but they didn't really push it either. Mm -hmm. And and that was the interesting thing about this last election was it kind of felt as though, based on all the reasons you said, the policy window had opened up finally that, okay, everything about time, about um, public support, about, um, you know, understanding and different models, it all kind of came together and you would think, okay, now's the time to propose this. Um, but despite those reasons, it, it wasn't the focal point. Why do you feel parties such as the Liberals and even the NDP decided not to make this a ballot box issue? I, I honestly can't. I don't know. Um, I, I, I think it's, it is a missed opportunity. Um, and it's, uh, it's one that I think that they should have to answer a little bit more clearly, because mm. um, honestly, I think, you know, there's, again, you know, there's a lot of different issues that people are dealing with right now across the country, and even across, you know, other countries too. But this is, this is at least an idea that could potentially, um, you know, alleviate not just you know, uh, helping people who are, you know, in, in low income, but also um, addressing things like the overrepresentation of Indigenous and, and people of color in the justice system or in the child welfare system. These are all things mm -hmm. that, 
you know, a lot of really, really smart people have done a lot of research about this and have said that this is something that could really help in those areas. And so it's, um, I think it's incumbent on them to have to answer that question. Absolutely. And as you know, you were talking, reflecting back on this last election, it kind of feels like the policy questions got lost on the campaign. It was a lot of, you know, about it was about people with, you know, a lot of personal attacks and a lot of mm-hmm. questions being thrown out that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the role that the government they wanted to form would play uh, for Canadians. If we were to just play the numbers game, though, um, at the dissolution of the 43rd Parliament, we had 155 Liberal MPs, uh, 119 Conservative ones, 32 from the Bloc, 24 from the NDP, two from the Greens, and five Independents um, in the House of Commons. After this election, uh, we have, you know, 158 Liberal MPs, 119 Conservative ones, 33 with the Bloc, 25 with the NDP, two with the Greens, and one Independent. From just a from a statistical point of view, it would seem that nothing much has changed. But in reality, what changes would you point out that we have seen uh, these last elections? Well, yeah, the seat distribution is very, very similar, which, you know, um, given that Justin Trudeau <laughs> said that, you know, he felt that it would be that p- parliament wasn't working before and dysfunctional before because it was a minority. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Canadians basically told them, well, un- go back to work. <laughs> We're not <laughs> too much and you guys are going to have to find a way to get along. So um, that, and I would be very surprised if we saw ourselves in another election um, very soon, just given the fact that, you know, I don't think uh, any of them can afford to go <laughs> to the polls again. But <clears throat> in terms of changes, um, there, ha- you know, there, there obviously, um, there were people who were defeated and, and there's some new faces in there. I think one of the, the bigger ones, uh, at least for the governing Liberal Party, is that they now have two um seats in uh alberta where uh, Mm. you know that was they were completely shot out of of alberta in the last election and it immediately became a really big issue I, i remember just one of the things trudeau did um after the election and before he named his cabinet was um just meeting with all the different party leaders and meeting with premiers and the uh, the the leaders of or sorry that like mayors of big cities, and it was just this big question of okay, what are you going to do about the fact that there's no representation or in in your caucus from you know from Alberta, which is a really big uh, you know province, and and there's a lot of uh, you know when you're talking about climate change and and resource development and you know, even a lot of the clashes that we've seen on, you know, trying to get those, you know, pipelines to, to you know, actually projects going ahead. There's, there's always a lot of, you know, issues there. You know, having those voices at the table now um, will be really useful, I think, uh, for the, the governing party. Um, I do also think that, you know, one of the, I, there was a, a really interesting piece today from Aaron Weary at CBC, and he's talking about the rural-urban divide of the different parties, and yeah. how it's it's really becoming um, very obvious now that 
the split between people who um, the seats that went to the liberals and the seats that went to the conservatives are widely, you know, the urban seats went to liberals and, and rural seats went to conservatives and what that could end up meaning in terms of, how, you know, what, you know, uh, policy development and, and, you know, partisan divide between these parties going forward. I, I think that's going to be, um, I mean that those those issues are always there, but I think it's it's going to be more pronounced now. Um, and and honestly, I think also uh, if you think about what's changed since the last election, um, yes, there's one fewer seat for the Greens, but I think their overall impact is going to be um, much different uh, in this particular sitting because of a lot of the internal turmoil that that they've been going through as a party and. And I think that they're going to have to do a lot of really hard work to try to get Canadians to really look at them um, as a serious contender for, uh, you know, and in elections, given what has, has happened to that party in the last couple of months. Yeah, let's jump off of that and, and focus on the Green Party here for a second. And as there were major differences between their 2019 showing and their 2021 showing, and we even know on, on PEI, many of the candidates who had finished, you know, a strong second were now all of a sudden in third and fourth and um, very different at a local level. At a federal level, uh, went from 6.55% uh, nationally in 2019 to uh, 2.33 percent in 2021, so over two years. You mentioned a lot of the internal turmoil uh, that contributed uh, to some of the uh, downfall of the Green Party. What do you think impacted voters' decision um, to no longer support the Green Party and thus that major decrease from 2019? Well, I, I do think that that infighting that was playing out in the headlines um, is, you know, people just don't like to see a party that, you know, is fighting with itself. Um, it, it's kind of, if you think about your vote as being really valuable and, and wanting, you know, it to go to something or to a, you know, a, a party or a person that is going to be effective in parliament, if a party can't figure out its own issues, uh, and, and be cohesive, uh, it's hard for people to really think about supporting them, not because, mm. you know, anyone would, would think badly of, of a, a green M MP, but, but it's, it's really just an organizational thing, um, and a trust thing too. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and some of the, the stuff that, um, the conversations that Annamie Paul has had, you know, even before her very, uh, emotional um, press conference uh, where she announced that she was leaving um, as the leader. I think it's pretty evident that there's some really big issues um, that the party right now is grappling with internally. And I think Canadians recognize that. And I think that contributed a big piece. The other thing too, I think um, you did see a push, uh, especially in the latter part of the election, um, towards strategic voting. So at, you know, different party leaders trying to say, I know you might think that you want to vote for the NDP or the Green or, you know, the Conservatives, they didn't, I don't think they wanted to acknowledge that they were, that they were losing um, votes to the, the People's Party, but I do know that internally they were concerned about it. So when people are, are being faced with those kinds of questions of, okay, well, if I'm concerned about a certain outcome, then maybe I should try to vote strategically. I think maybe there was some of that as well. Um, but, you know, I think it's, 
it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see and and some of the conversations I've been having with people just saying what does this mean now all these minority governments not just here you know not just federally but also across Canada a lot of provincial minority governments you know I think a lot of these um, third parties are may may have to start rethinking their approaches to things if they want to kind of break the barrier and and try to get more support because it just seems like all the parties are trying to gravitate to the board the center of the political spectrum and it's you know to try to get you know to to get more uh, of an influence or get more votes but everyone's going after the same <laughs> you know space and if anything i think that's polarizing things a little bit more in the conversations and i also think it's it's now giving voters less choice uh and so i don't know it, it I, I don't have the answers but i i'm interested in in the dynamics that are playing out and what that's going to look like going forward Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned strategic voting and minority governments. Listeners, keep that in your back pocket. We're going to get to that in a second, but just want to highlight the People's Party of Canada here while we're, we're talking about some of the changes in voting and what contributed uh, potentially to the strategic voting and minority government situation. In 2019, People's Party, you know, brand new, um, had a new showing and gained 1.62% of the vote. 2021, we saw that there was an increase there and that jumped to 4.94 percent of the vote nationally a lot of people are saying that this increase is due to the anti-mask and anti-vaccination movements do you think that the ppc is an indeed a single issue party or can we expect to continue to see them moving forward in federal elections well, I think um, the the party leader Maxime Bernier has said that he wants to continue going. So I think we'll we'll see them. But um, I would, I guess, I'll be surprised if they have a strong showing in future elections, because I think that um, that there were a, that 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 anti-vax, anti-mask, um, anti-lockdown sort of movement. Um, became a really big part of, of its messaging in this election. But, you know, how much can that be sustained, you know, in 18 months or two years or four years, hopefully before the next election, will these, will we still be having these conversations? You know, will COVID-19 still be with us? Hopefully not. Um, <laughs> something to think about, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely someday, perhaps. But, you know, and so then, um, you know, what, what will the party do to try to keep those same supporters? Because I do believe that a lot of those, that support came not necessarily. I did mention before that, you know, I think some conservative voters went to the, the PPC, but I also think that there was a lot of um, just people that maybe had never really engaged with elections before people who are just not um, like just maybe never voted. I mean, there's millions of people every every election that never vote. And, and that, you know, I think maybe some of that was there um, or even just some discontent even from other, you know, members of or former voters of other parties. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I would be surprised if they can sustain that level of support. But I think it really depends on what happens next in our country. And, you know, given that there's these conversations happening about personal freedoms versus you know, our collective reaction to public health emergencies. Um, 
you know, if that conversation continues in the same way, then maybe, but I, I would be surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you hinted at this before as well as the talk about strategic voting. Um, that was also another conversation that was had, um, especially towards the tail end of the campaign season. Um, and this is something you've covered in your columns again, where we're back at strategic voting. Um, of course, when we talk about strategic voting, we also talk about electoral reform as well. So how do you find that the conversation around electoral reform itself has changed from when it first became part of mainstream news in the 90s to the 2015 federal election to now 2021? Well, um, I think the question of electoral reform was, uh, I think people were really much more open to it um, in recent years. Uh, and if you recall, that was one of Justin Trudeau's election promises from 2015. And even if you kind of just drill down a little bit into that election, um, that when he came out with that promise, it was at a time when had a lot more ground to try to make up uh, if they wanted, you know, to go from from where they were to a majority, that's a huge, huge jump. And so, and that that promise that he came out with in 2015 on electoral reform, you could argue that was one of the, the turning points of that election in favor of Justin Trudeau. And then of course, we all know that, you know, he, um, the, it was studied, it, there was public consultations that happened across the country. And then he uh, just came out and said, no, we're not going to do it. And because there's not consensus. Um, I think that, that that whole exercise and how it was handled changed the conversation about um, electoral reform in Canada. Um, Maybe I think for people who are in favor of it, um, they probably don't like what happened because I think generally speaking, Canadians just were, um, I, I, you know what, I, I, I do believe that they actually purposely confused the issue. Um, I think that they, uh, that, and as a result, then Canadians were confused and they really didn't understand what the impact could be. And I think those fears were definitely, um, heightened by the people in government, because when you're in government and you have a majority, why would you want to change the voting system that could exactly take away your, your ability to get that kind of power again? So I think that's part of the problem uh, in terms of that, you know, it's it's easy to say, yes, I want electoral reform when you're a third party or a fourth party. But once you're in government, there was the incentive um, to do it. And um, and I think that without there being more of a push from from the electorate, then it's I don't I can't see that conversation happening again anytime soon because we did have an, an extensive conversation about it after 2015. And in the end, nothing happened from it. And that happens a lot with this issue. And it's it's really unfortunate because I think that people are smarter voters are smarter than than people give people credit for uh and they they often say oh it's too confusing they're not going to get it i think people are not confused by it when they're presented with a clear option a clear choice uh and uh, it's unfortunate that we just never <laughs> we don't uh have those clear choices when the time comes to have like a plebiscite or a referendum on it and it's interesting you bring that up, um, you know, the comment around 
a assuming that you know oh you know voters won't get this this is too hard um you know and and it's too confusing um you're kind of you know setting the stage based on that launch pad and you know PEI is particularly no stranger to confusing processes with electoral reform, namely the 2016 plebiscite. Um, And a lot of failure, I think, could be attributed to purposefully confusing people on all these different options and having that as the purpose from the get-go and of course the result in that being well there's not a consensus it's too confusing for voters we can't do it like etc etc so i think that's a very fair comment i I always think of that that image of Miriam Monsef because she was the the minister for democratic reform under you know when when the liberals were first elected to a majority in 2015 and after she did her whole you know countrywide public consultations and and they had came out and said well this is and it, it seemed pretty obvious that it wasn't going to work she came out um, and did this scrum and she had a piece of paper and it had this really complex math equation on it and it was she was trying to use that as an example of like this is why it's so confusing people this is you know this is a, a mathematical equation to show you like how complicated, you know, this, you know, changing things would be. I don't even really understand what that, that, that picture or that equation has anything to do with electoral reform, but it's a perfect example of how they were absolutely trying to play up the the fact that this is, you know, this is confusing and we can't do this. And and what if it takes away people's, you know, agency or, or ability, you know, and that's, that's always what, what the conversation happens because we're talking about elections. This is how we choose our government. So of course it's going to be really important that the country is, 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 you know, agreeing on this, but I don't necessarily believe that just the status quo is, necessarily what people support it's just that it's that's what we have now so people accept it definitely and as a result of that in the last number of years uh, we've seen more and more minority governments and so um, you know traditionally this was a little bit more rare um, you know it was kind of every once in a while and on average they would last around 479 days but we saw in 04, 06, 08 uh, 2019 and now 2021 minority governments Um, you know should we be regarding this as kind of the new rule or do you feel as though the last 20 years have been still an exception well i i mean if you look at what's happening across canada i think it's it's becoming less and less rare and i think because we're seeing stronger support for parties that are not necessarily the liberals or the conservatives then that's where you get these these minority um, you know, results. And so as long as we continue to have parties that are not just the liberals and conservatives, you know, gaining support and um, running full campaigns, then I think we're going to continue to see more votes for them and therefore more seats. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting that I think, you know, maybe it's just because they had a majority. So uh, the liberals really wanted to get one back again. But you know, I think Canadians are are we're are trying to send a message to our you know our lawmakers in Ottawa that they want to have more diverse um, voices. They want to have more options, and 
less of this, okay, well, one party decides everything. And then, you know, and then you have those opportunities where you can just say, oh yeah, I know we promised this, but now we're not going to do it. And there's really no ability to hold them accountable to that. Whereas in a minority situation, that would be much more difficult. So I don't know, I guess I, I, I hope we see more. I think that they actually are good for democracy um, if in the current electoral system. Mm-hmm. Without, without a change in our voting system, I think a minority government is the best way to ensure that, um, that you know, parties do have to start taking into account each other's policies, uh, which means, you know, maybe if the Liberals weren't paying enough attention to Western Can- uh, Canada before, they certainly are now. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be reflected in their policies and their and their, their approaches. And that's that can only be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've mentioned policies and programs, and we've kind of seen that this last election, we didn't have a lot of opportunity to chat about them. Um, and we're now still in the early post-election phase with cabinet members and mandate letters. Um, haven't yet been announced. What are some of the potential appointments or policies and programs that you are most closely monitoring? Well, um, in terms of um, the policies, like what I expect in like the throne speech, for example, mm-hmm. um, well, obviously the the ten dollar day daycare is going to be a huge um, piece of that. And I think we heard from Justin Trudeau that he's keeping um, Christian Freeland as finance minister, and sh- that was really her baby. So we're going to hear a lot about that. Um, and I think also um, the climate portfolio, um, the uh, COP26 is, is happening next month, which is a, a global uh, climate summit. And, um, and Canada, you know, has, has gone there, you know, in the last couple of years and uh, presented very aggressive, um, you know, uh, emissions targets, which you know, we kind of have to, the, the planet is, is, you know, telling us we have to take this seriously. And so I, I will expect to see um, those things. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because if you start to like look into the, you know, the, the platforms of the parties, a lot of the things that they were promising are things that they can't necessarily promise because they're not their jurisdiction. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the liberals promised, you know, a certain number of doctors, Um, well, the federal government doesn't hire doctors, the provinces do. (laughs) And, um, you know, and there's a lot of that kind of thing. So uh, you'll have, there'll have to be a lot of discussion about, you know, provincial, federal, provincial, territorial um, collaboration. And, um, and I I also am really going to be, you know, wondering what the NDP is going to be doing, because in the last uh, parliament, they supported the liberals and, and, and con- they didn't always like the things that the liberals were doing, but they did, you know, support them um, on confidence measures and on, on budgets. And they haven't been necessarily as well. And the leader uh, Jagmeet Singh hasn't given them that assurance that that will happen yet. So mm-hmm. what those conversations will be like, I'm really curious about, but um yeah, and I mean, you want to talk about cabinet, then there's, that's a whole, <laughs> you have just like a, a, a whole panel on just talking about the cabinet, but <laughs> I'll let you ask your question if you have one on that. Yeah, I, I don't think we have any specific question um, when it comes to cabinet members, uh, but you know, you did mention something that uh, was just, I was just thinking about is 
when we look at what people cared about the most this election, it was, you know, in Atlantic Canada, especially, it was a lot of conversations around healthcare and housing, which were provincial jurisdiction. And as a result, we saw a number of promises being made by all parties around healthcare and housing. And as you mentioned, some of these promises that were made and some of these platform points, there is no control over. So how realistic do you think, or, you know, um, what strategy do you think government will have to employ uh, going forward to make sure that they can deliver on these campaign promises? Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, Trudeau has been really um, effective at um, getting provinces on board uh, on different things that even <laughs> you would have thought that they wouldn't be able to, if you even if you think about um, the carbon tax or um, even the childcare agreements, he you know he had most provinces signing um, agreements in principle before the election, and, and you know and 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 since then we've heard from you know Doug Ford in Ontario who said that they're going to be moving forward with it too. So even with political um, uh, you know, the, the people in the, who are leading provinces that aren't necessarily politically aligned with um, the Trudeau government, he's been able to, to get those agreements. So he, he clearly is, is able to, to have those conversations and negotiations. But I think it's going to be a little bit trickier when it comes to conversations about healthcare spending, because the provinces have been saying that they want more money from Ottawa and and they don't necessarily want strings attached they don't want to have money only dedicated for this or that because i mean generally speaking the provinces are best positioned to be able to say what their priorities are and you know yes it's great that you know Justin Trudeau wants there to be more doctors but that might not necessarily be what it's needed in every single province or territory. There, there might be, yes, I'm sure there are doctor shortages everywhere, but there's also other major pressures on the healthcare systems that are, are different in different jurisdictions. You know, here in Atlanta, Canada, we have an aging population. So that, you know, is a totally different situation than let's say Northern Ontario. So it, it's, it will be challenging for, um, for this government now to, uh, to go forward with a lot of its, its platform because it will require a lot of, of um, negotiation. Um, but they, he's been able to do it before. Uh, so I, I can't see it being, um, you know, a major barrier, but it will be, it, it will mean that it's, there's much more collaboration, much more conversations that have to happen before. And, and, you know, as opposed to, for example, in 2015, when they had a majority and they could just, you know, essentially do whatever they wanted. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your very comprehensive answers, Teresa. It's always a pleasure to hear you talk. And I feel like we learned so much more over the last 45 minutes or so. Uh, now, this kind of concludes our formal segment uh, of the interview, but we do have um, a very serious segment after this one that we call our beer panel. Uh, now, that's just a name. In the previous season, we had uh, a lot of uh, folks talk about their favorite recipes, their favorite restaurants, um, their favorite non-alcoholic beverages, anything. So as our guest, we'd like to invite you to go first. And what would you like to recommend to our listeners today? 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm not really a big beer drinker, <laughs> uh, but I do, uh, especially in the summertime, obviously like to have something cold to drink at the beach. Uh, and my favorite, um, is, uh, the colliding tides from, um, from the, uh, PEI brewing company. I especially like the blueberry flavored one. I think it's really yummy. Uh, and yeah, that's, I think that would, if, um, if that's, I'm sorry. I don't know if that's the right answer or <laughs> if that works for you. That's perfect. Um, I have tried the colliding tides. I do prefer the grape one, but the blueberry is also incredible. Um, Emma, would you like to go next? Yes, um, I also love the colliding tides. I love a good gin-based drink, so definitely with you there, Teresa. Um, now, since moving to Ontario this past summer, I feel like I have to give an Ontario recommendation. Um, you know, what would be a podcast about Canadian politics if there weren't a little bit of Ontario exceptionalism? Uh, <laughs> I totally joke. I totally joke. I'll be sprinkling in some different PI ones too, so listeners, don't worry. But uh, this particular one, I'm going to recommend uh, the Flying Monkey Brewery out of Barrie, Ontario. Um, I've had a number of their beers, but the standout one I'd like to recommend to folks is the uh, Juicy Ass IPA. Uh, again, another really good IPA would be kind of similar to uh, the white no noise from Upstreet Brewing so uh, folks want kind of a bit of a comparator there but kind of a citrusy good IPA um, nice to sip on uh, especially during the summer kind of a cooler drink so definitely would recommend that but I'll be coming back with better PI recommendations soon but that's what I have for now <laughs> awesome um, I guess you know, thank you for the recommendation, Emma. Um, next time we're in Ontario, we'll definitely try it out. Uh, but for me, I think I'd like to, it's October, so I'd like to honor the season and talk about Grape Digger from Upstreet, which is their fall uh, seasonal. It's a pumpkin ale. It's really good this time of year. And, you know, just walking downtown and looking at the scarecrows and the different decorations now, um, the Grape Digger is really uh, the perfect beverage for it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think now I want a pumpkin spice latte all of a sudden. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's time. I also, <laughs> I also really like the pumpkin spice cold brew that Starbucks does as well. It's delicious. Mm -hmm. um, and I really like iced coffee. So, me too. <laughs> I'm drinking <laughs> one right now. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Well, that's, I think that's everything we had for you today, Teresa. Thank you so much again for joining us um, and chatting with us for the last hour or so. We really appreciated your time. And, you know, especially since it's a beautiful Sunday outside as we're recording this. Well, thanks so much for having me. I think, you know, it's, it's really great to have these conversations and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Wonderful to talk to you, Teresa. Thank you so much. And that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thanks again to Teresa for joining us and sharing her insights. As always, our opening and closing music is Gaspazy by the talented and wonderful Mr. Shane Pendergast. He has some shows coming up, including his guest performance at Fiddler Sons Cayley at none other than the Cayley Hall, Thursday, October 14th, 2021, 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. 
He also has a show at his brand new folk club, the Jack Pine Folk Club, uh, Wednesday, October 20th, 2021, 7.30 to 8.30 p.m., and that is at the Poor House. It's getting cold out there, so stay warm and stay safe. This has been Dialogue. Dialogue.